You could clap now. <laughs> but then you'd be a jerk. <laughs> Everyone would hate you. <laughs> well, good morning, guys. Uh, it is December the 3rd, so I realize it's just the beginning of the Christmas season. But uh, we just wanted to show you that video to remind you that uh, Christmas chaos is watching. Christmas chaos is waiting, and Christmas chaos has got your number, so uh, be aware that that's going to be going on. Um, there is this uh, situation that I, arises every December, and that is that one of the most important times of the year is upon us as Christians. Uh, we we in, our, in our society and our culture may have forgotten this, but uh, Christmas is about Jesus, and so as a pastor, one of the things I'm always wanting to do is to help you come back out of all of the craziness and the busyness and all the stuff that's going on and get you back to the Word of God and get you back to the throne of grace and get you back to Jesus, which is what Christmas is supposed to be all about. And it's so ironic that a season that is supposed to focus us on Jesus actually has the exact opposite effect in most of our lives. And so uh, my challenge is to help you remember what's true and to get back focused on that. And, and of course, I, I know that you know the story. This is one of the challenges that pastors face at Christmas time. I need to preach four sermons this month, all related to this baby who's lying in a manger. And it's a story that you have heard every detail of a hundred times. And my job is to somehow either make something up so you'll get something new or take what is in the Word of God and somehow serve it to you in a way that you go, oh, this is, this is new, this is different, this is feeding me. And, and so you know this story and that's my challenge. You know how it goes. You, you know, you've seen the pictures. You know about Mary riding in on a donkey, dealing with her labor pains as they head to Bethlehem. You know that they go to the inn only to meet a hard-hearted innkeeper who will not let them come in and who forces them to go out. And every time there's a church play, uh, the innkeeper is the villain. He's the bad guy. And he's also the villain in lots of sermons at this time of year. You know that Joseph takes his wife who is already uh, in labor and, and has nowhere to have this child and takes her and finds a stable somewhere and that she lays in this stable and gives birth to the baby and lies him in a manger. You already know the story. And you have a nativity set to prove it, right? There's just one problem. Almost none of what I just told you is actually biblical. Almost none of it. Uh, the donkey, that all the Christmas cards that you see with Mary and the donkey and Joseph pulling the little thing, not in the Bible. We have no idea how they got there. They may have Ubered for all we know. We have no idea how they got there, right? She was, there's nothing in the scripture that tells us she was on a donkey. Uh, and uh, we, we see her on this donkey, great with child, already dealing with the early pains of labor, hurrying to get to Bethlehem. But actually the scripture says that they came to Bethlehem and while they were there, during the season that they were there, it came time for her to give birth. So we don't know how far along she was or how long they had been staying in Bethlehem by the time she gave birth. Um, we, uh, 
we have uh, no evidence in Scripture that there was a stable involved at all. Did you know that? There's, the Scripture doesn't say anything about them going to a stable. The Scripture only tells us that the babe was laying in a manger. That's it. So, so do you know what a manger is? This is a feeding trough for animals, right? So somehow, some way, somewhere, they got a hold of a feeding trough, and that became the crib for this baby as for this traveling family, right? And the innkeeper doesn't exist. There's no innkeeper in the Bible. In fact, there's not even an inn in the Bible. It says in Luke that they came and there was, they had to lay the baby in a manger for there was no room for them in the inn, right? You, you know that verse? Well, actually, when you read that in Greek, um, the, the, the word inn isn't in there. Basically, what it says literally in Greek is there were no guest rooms available, there was no room for them to stay in. So we picture, they pull up, it's Motel 6, they see the, the vacancy sign, and as they're walking from the donkey to the front desk, before they ring the bell, the vacancy sign says no vacancy, and then by the time they deal with this innkeeper and he tells them, no, you can't stay here and I don't care if you're pregnant and all that stuff, then they go back out and there's no other. They go to, you know, Days Inn and they, they go to Best Western and there's just nobody there, right? Or maybe you have heard that inns in those days were really something closer to like a combination of a tavern and a, a brothel. Um, kind of like you see in the Old West movies, right? You, you have these saloon girls and guys drinking and gambling. That's really pretty much what inns were in those days. And they were rare. There wasn't much for people to stay in a public house in that culture in those days. Because culturally, it would be a huge shame for you to have relatives in town and not put them up. It was just understood that you would always make room for your relatives. And so um, the bottom line is this. Here's what we do know. They couldn't find a place to stay. Well, they, they couldn't find a place to stay with relatives. They couldn't find a place to stay with friends. Um, they may have even gone to some of these brothels and looked for a place to stay there. But wherever they went, they couldn't find a place to stay. And, and they may have even stayed at the home of a family member but had to sleep outside. There would be in these homes... Um, oftentimes, uh, either under the house or behind the house, there would be the area wherever they had a little bit of livestock, and maybe they stayed there just outside of a, of a friend or a family member's home. We just literally don't know these details. Now, I realize that I probably just ruined Christmas for half of you. <laughs> You're gonna, and let's not even get into the uh, three kings who never, who never came, right? And, 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 you know, the jolly elf and the reindeer, all that stuff is a separate thing. The Bible talks about uh, very little in the way of details for what happened on that first Christmas. There may have been an evil innkeeper who turned them away, or it may have just been relatives who, who simply had no space in their homes, which makes a lot of sense, right? Because why were they there? They were there for the census to pay taxes. And the, and the um, political leaders had made the decision that they had to come back to the city of their ancestors. 
So from wherever they were, they all came, anybody that was from the house of David came back to Bethlehem, which is the, the city where David was. So they come back to the city of David, and, and so you have all of these extended family relatives coming from all over the place because the law required them to come. So everybody that was there was pretty much related. If you, if you were not of the household of David, if you were not of that lineage, you were out of town that week because you had to go to your parentage town, right? So there's all kinds of traveling going on. And if you, if you were uh, a resident of Bethlehem who was a, a member of the household of David, then there is no question you had a bunch of people staying at your house. And every house was filled with people who were in from out of town. And my guess is that Joseph probably did everything he could to find a nice, comfortable, warm, safe place for his son to be born. That, that's my guess. That, that's certainly what I would have done. But remember this. You didn't call ahead, right? You didn't text Uncle Bob and say, hey, we're coming on Tuesday. You couldn't do any of that. You showed up and you went to whatever relatives you knew. And when they got there, apparently the, the rooms were all taken. So we don't know about this innkeeper, but whether there was an innkeeper or not, somebody turned these people away. Somebody, probably a bunch of different somebodies, said, no, you can't stay here. Sorry, wish I could help, but there just isn't any space here. And my guess is that there was a, probably a significant period of time in which Joseph and Mary went from place to place and they heard, you know, why don't you try this cousin's house? Why don't you try that uncle's house? I think you have a third cousin twice removed who lives over on Main Street. Why don't you go there? And I would imagine that they went around and they found nothing until finally somebody made some probably outdoor space available to them where there was a manger that was available for them to put their child in. So somebody turned Jesus away. And there may not have been a literal innkeeper, but I, I sort of like to think of the, the people of Bethlehem as a collective innkeeper. <laughs> that, that the whole town basically <laughs> couldn't find enough room to give a bed to these people. Nobody, it seems, offered hospitality to Joseph or Mary. Nobody, it seems, offered hospitality to Jesus. And it's even a sadder story when you realize that both of them came from the house of David. So you have both Joseph's side of the family and Mary's side of the family, and still nobody gave up space for Jesus. And I'm sure that some of them kicked themselves later for it. You know, some of them maybe were at the wedding in Cana and drank that wine and went, we should have been nicer when he was a baby, you know. Um, but this collective innkeeper had missed his greatest opportunity to experience God. And if you think about it, you can't blame him because he was swamped. It was not only the busy time of year in Bethlehem, it was probably the busiest time any of them could have ever remembered. It was, it was literally chaotic. And, and so I want to get that out there that, that some of these things are not the way we thought they were. A lot of this stuff is not in the Bible, the stuff that we take for granted about Christmas. But I want to tell you, I'm not going to spend an entire sermon time preaching about what's not in the Bible. 
That's, that's probably being done somewhere this morning, but that's not what I'm going to do. Um, I do want to say, though, that sometimes what's not in the passage is an important part of the message. Sometimes we can learn a lot from what doesn't happen in one of these stories. Like, let's take stories that we're familiar with. You, you're all familiar with the story of David and Goliath, and the little shepherd boy comes with his rocks, and he kills the giant and changes everything for Israel. We know what happens in the story, but you know what doesn't happen in the story? King Saul, the mighty warrior and king, doesn't answer the call. That's what doesn't happen in the story. And his unwillingness to answer the call, his unwillingness to trust God, his unwillingness to stand up for his people, his lack of, of anger and, and brokenness at the fact that the name of a holy God is being mocked, that's part of the story. And it ends up having a huge impact on Saul's life, on David's life, on Israel. It has a huge impact. What didn't happen? Or, or take the famous um, story in Genesis where Abraham takes his only son, the child of promise, Isaac, and God says, you have to, you're going to have to sacrifice him on an altar. And, and, and Abraham and Isaac go up the mountain to the place of sacrifice, and they build the altar and all of that. And, and we have uh, Isaac lying on the altar and Abraham lifting the knife to plunge it into his son when an angel interrupts and stops and says, that's enough, your faith has is, is been proven. We know what happens in the story. You know what didn't happen? Isaac never resisted. See, I know in a lot of our minds, Isaac is this little boy that he puts on the thing and ties him down. Isaac's not a little boy in the story. Isaac is at least 15 to 25 years old at this time. His father is well over 100. Who's going to win that fight? Right? And yet Isaac has enough faith somehow based upon the faith that his father had built into him, based on what he saw in his parents, to trust God enough. The scripture says Abraham did it knowing that even if he killed his son, God would raise him up again. Apparently, Isaac had that same kind of resurrection faith. That's what's not in the story. Well, here's another one. You know, when Jesus died on the cross and... and uh, on the third day, he rose again, right? And, and we see the story, and the, and the stone gets rolled away, and the, the light bursts from the tomb, and the angel is there, and the, and the soldiers are laying unconscious on the ground, and Jesus comes walking out of the tomb. We know what happens in the story. You know what didn't happen? That shocks me when I read this story. You know what didn't happen? The disciples were not by the edge of the tomb waiting for this, <laughs> right? How many times had Jesus told them? Just in the last few days, he had told them again and again and again, listen, um, they're going to take me, they're going to kill me, but don't worry, on the third day I will rise again. Again and again and again, he told them, they're going to kill me, and on the third day I'm going to rise again. And on the third day, when he rose again, the disciples were in hiding. What does that tell us? It tells us that even after all that time of walking with Jesus, their faith still couldn't even get their minds around the idea that God could overcome death. And they didn't expect an actual resurrection. And that becomes a very big part of the transformation in their lives that leads to the book of Acts and all that God has done in the church ever since. I'm just trying to take obvious, um, well-known stories and show you that sometimes there are things that don't happen in the story that turn out to be really important. And sometimes it's helpful to think about that. 
So when we go back to the Christmas story, it's interesting to me. Who else is not in the story? Well, Joseph's parents are not in the story and Mary's parents are not in the story. Where the heck are they? They had to be there. They were in town also. They were required to come and pay their taxes. They were from the city of David. And so both sets of families should have been there. Not just, you know, great aunt Agnes who lives over in Bethlehem, but actually my parents, my brothers, my sisters, a lot of my closest friends would have been there. And yet we don't see any of them coming to Joseph and Mary's side. We don't see any of them providing in any way. We don't see any support system for them whatsoever. And we should be careful. We're not going to read too much into what isn't in the Bible. But it makes you wonder, doesn't it? Like, were the parents still not convinced? I mean, mom and dad, we've told you a hundred times, he never touched me. I'm just pregnant. (laughs) You know? How would that go over in your household with your teenage daughter or your teenage son? Apparently, there was something going on there. So we don't see any of them in this story. What we see is Joseph and Mary and Jesus pretty much abandoned without any help, without any support system, without anybody there. It's not just that there was no room for them at the end. There was not really any room for Jesus in the lives of these people. Apparently, everybody was so swept up in the chaos, and there was a lot of chaos, but apparently everybody was so swept up in the chaos that they missed Christmas. And friends, it can happen to any of us. You don't have to be an innkeeper to miss Jesus at Christmas. You know, if you're a shopkeeper, if you work in retail, you, you own a store or maybe you're, you're getting your minimum wage working behind the counter at Forever 21 or Bed Bath & Beyond or whatever it is that you do, this is crazy time for you, right? And it is ratcheting up. It's the 3rd of December. The 4th will be busier than the 3rd. The 5th will be busier than the 4th. The 6th will be busier than the 5th. And you're going to be working more hours and you're going to be dealing with more cranky people and you're going to have more challenges related to that because if you work in retail right now, this is chaotic time. If you're a student right now, this is chaotic time because it is finals coming up. It is big papers and big projects coming up. It is that group project where they stuck you in a group with a bunch of losers and they're going to drag your your grade down if you don't do all the work. Am I right, Rachel? Yes. yes. <laughs> and, and, and so you're doing 75% of the work for this grade of a group of eight people and they're all playing on their little phones and all that kind of stuff. And you're dealing with that kind of stress. If you're a teacher, this is an absolutely insane time. The number of things that have to get done before Christmas break, not, excuse me, winter break, the number of things that have to get done before winter break is enormous and there's pressure on you. If you're a parent, oh my gosh, not only is there a Christmas dress to buy for your daughter, and not only are there toys to get, and not only is there a pageant at at, uh, the local community center and your kid's dance class and all that stuff that is going on, you gotta go to all of that kind of stuff, you gotta pay for all of this kind of stuff, you gotta sell Christmas cookies outside the library, you gotta do all this stuff because it's Christmas time. If you're a business person, the end of the year is upon you. It is all about getting things wrapped up and making sure the books are done. 
doesn't seem to matter who you are, it's chaotic. If you're a pastor, it's chaotic. This is the busiest time of the church year, and it is for every church I know of. And, and so the Lord's been speaking to me about this because as I walk into December every year, I kind of take a deep breath because I go, you know, I'm about to jump onto a moving conveyor belt, and if I can't keep up, I'm going to be like Lucy and Ethel at the chocolate factory. It's just going to overwhelm me, right? That's the reality. It has to be close to 20 years ago, Christmas Eve, our kids are little, and uh, we had decided, and it was our tradition, to uh, spend Christmas Eve night with Christie's extended family and have a big, you know, family event there. Christmas Day, we would drive for an hour to get to my parents' house, and my extended family would come with all the cousins and all the aunts and uncles and all the dogs and birds and whatever was coming with my sister. And uh, we, we would, you know, iguanas or whatever she had. She's an animal person. And, and the kids are little. And you know what? When you have three little kids, as a general rule, money's tight. And money was tight for us. And we wanted to do something to make it special for the kids um, and we came up with this brilliant idea because we had free Disney passes. And we said, let's take the kids to Disneyland on Christmas Eve. Nobody will be there. <laughs> It'll be great. Like everybody's busy on Christmas Eve. There'll probably be like seven people there. We'll run from ride to ride. They're probably giving away free food. It'll be fantastic. Let's just go. So we got to um, Disneyland and we parked and three hours later when we reached the tram and got on into the park and the kids are already crying and they need a nap and all that stuff is going on, right? And we're going, you will have fun. It's Christmas, dang it. We, we're doing that whole thing, right? And we spent the day at Disneyland and then we loaded these sort of cranky, I need a nap kids back into the minivan because when you have three kids, if you don't have a minivan, you have no life. It's as simple as that. You have to have a minivan. Two, you can do with a car, but three, you have to have a minivan. So we have a minivan. We load the kids into the minivan. Everybody falls asleep. And finally, there's some peace as we're heading up the 57 freeway at the breakneck speed of three miles per hour. And we're going, we go through, we're heading through Tonner Canyon when suddenly there's a weird sound in the van and my foot just goes to the floor and the engine goes, and thankfully, we're right next to an off-ramp. So we pulled off, if you know the area, it was at... Um, What's that street? Tonner Canyon, right? We pulled off at Tonner Canyon and go around the big loop, but we're coasting because we're going downward. We had no power in the car. And we finally get to the bottom of the off-ramp, and we pull over to the shoulder, and our car is busted. And we don't know what to do. So uh, we call some friends who are in Diamond Bar. We tell them, look, our car is broken down. We're late to the family Christmas. We, you got to come and help us. They drop what they're doing. They jump in their station wagon. They come and get us. We load all. We have Christmas gifts and kids and coats and all that stuff. Load all this into their station wagon. They take us back to our house where we get our other car, load it up, and head up to the family thing. And we arrive and we say, Merry Christmas, everyone. How's everyone doing? And we have our Christmas party there. And then we get in our car and we drive home. The next morning we get up and we are ready now for our hour-long drive out to my parents' house. We get in the car and it doesn't start. 
Meanwhile, understand, the van, it was, it was on the off-ramp. It was on the shoulder of the off-ramp. So what we did was we called a mechanic friend and he said, I'll get a tow company to go get it. And when the tow company got there, they found that the car had already been impounded. So we get the word, your, your van has been impounded. So I'm like, it's Christmas. What are we going to do? It's impounded. It's like 7,000 bucks a day to store it because it's Christmas, right? So it's in storage. There's not their places closed. What are we going to do? You know, we call the storage place and we get the answer machine that says, Merry Christmas. We're closed today. And I go, shut up. And I hang up the phone and, and, and the tension is building and the tension is building. So we finally go out to get in the car Christmas morning. We're going to do this. We push everybody into this car. We're used to a minivan, right? But we push everybody into the car and that car doesn't start. At that point, um, I mentioned the Lord's name as a way of beginning a prayer. And we began to pray, oh Lord, help, help, help. And the car still didn't start. So we had another car. It was a car, it was this old little car that we were going to get rid of and just hadn't gotten rid of yet, and it hadn't been driven in weeks or maybe months, and um, it was a Renault Alliance, <laughs> okay? Some of you know the dependability of those great Renault French cars, and, and the car was a little bigger than two of these seats, I think, you know? It was, just it was like a clown car, you know? you know? And we got in the clown car, and we stuffed... All the, all the car seats and all the kids and all the gifts and all the stuff. And we're in the little clown car like this. And that's how we drove for an hour out to Christmas and drove back. And, and when we finally got home at the end of Christmas Day, because Christmas Day with my family is a circus of its own. There is so much noise and there is so much tension and there are so many people doing so many crazy things and you're just like, oh my gosh, my head is buzzing. By the time we leave, our heads are buzzing. We get back and I finally just sit and look. And by the time we got home, I was ready to kill somebody, anybody. That was my Christmas peace. It's easy to miss Jesus in a moment like that. <laughs> I'm telling you, spending time praising God was not at the top of my priority list at that moment. It had been two days of Christmas in hell. And I thought, wow, I don't want any more of this. I just want time. And my poor dear wife, who is an introvert, she must have just been devastated by this point, you know? She was like in a fetal position under a bed somewhere. I didn't even find her, you know? That, that was our situation. It is easy to miss Jesus in the chaos of Christmas, guys. Now listen, I want to be clear. This message is not an admonition for you to, to remember that Jesus is a part of the Christmas holiday. It's not an admonition for you to make sure that you, you keep Jesus in your Christmas story and that you have a nativity with a baby Jesus and that you, you tell your kids about Jesus and you make time for church on Christmas Eve and you have religious decorations. That's not what this is about. This message is an admonition to keep Jesus in your heart during this otherwise chaotic Christmas season. I'm talking about your relationship with the living God, the one that we worship as a result of that first Christmas. Now, I said I wouldn't just do what's not in the Bible. Let's go to Luke chapter 2. I know you're thinking, aren't we going to pray? Aren't we about done? Hang in there. Luke chapter 2. To a famous story that you've heard before. Beginning in verse 1. 
Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of the family of David, in order to register, along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them. In the end, there was no guest room for them. I, I want you to notice a couple of things, because this is my challenge every Christmas. I go back and read the Christmas story in all four Gospels and go, what, is it, what have I missed, Lord? What have I missed? What do you want to show me about Christmas that I haven't seen before? I want you to notice a couple of things. If you go back to verse 1, I just want you to notice there's a lot of distractions at Christmas. Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, and, and that's where everybody goes, boo, we don't like Caesar Augustus. He's the bad guy. He's the guy, he's the ruler. He's the political leader who's making life tough on them, and, and there was a census that would be taken of all the inhabited earth, and, and as we continue to read, we find out that it's not just a census where we count everybody, we're counting everybody so we can collect taxes from them. So what I'm saying is, Here's a situation. Um, there is a, a, a situation in their day and in their time where they have a wildly unpopular political leader who has a new tax plan. Okay? I'm just saying. All right? And, and this really jumped out at me. And the reason it jumped out at me was because it seems like Every time I log on to the computer for anything, every time I turn on the news, every time I hear the, turn on the radio news or anything like that, and half the time when I'm having conversations with people, it's about this issue right now, that there's this new tax plan, what do you think, and, and you know what, it cracks me up. Raise your hand if you've read the tax plan. Nobody? Oh, it's only 500 pages. Why would you not read it? It's Christmas. You got nothing to do the tax plan. I guarantee you have an opinion about it. You haven't read it, neither have the senators apparently, but that's neither here nor there. But, but I guarantee you have an opinion, and I've heard a lot of your opinions, and I've seen them on Facebook, and they're not always shared in the kindest of ways, that you have an idea that it's either terrible or it's wonderful, that Republicans are either great or they're satanic, or Democrats are either wonderful or they're from hell, and, and that's the deal. And, and, you know, it would be so much easier if I could just get all Christians to go, yeah, this is our Christian political point of view, and then we'd all have the same point of view, but we don't. I can't say anything political up here without one of you getting mad at me. Half of you are probably going to get mad at me. And, and, and right now, and, and I, I want to be very, very respectful of the office of the president when I say this, right now, the, the controversy that surrounds our president and the leadership in our country is so overwhelming that most of us are very distracted by it. And I just wonder how much time, if maybe this isn't your thing, so wait, I'll get to you. <laughs> but, but if this is your thing, I just wonder how much time you have spent talking about, thinking about, fretting about the leadership of our country and whether or not you like the policies that are being proposed and all that kind of stuff compared to how much time you've spent either seeking after Jesus, serving Jesus, or sharing Jesus with somebody else. 
they were distracted because they had a political leader, a very unpopular political leader, who had a new tax plan. It was a distraction. Look at verse 3. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. In other words, as I said before, everybody had to up, up, uproot and take their entire family and head to another town, which would be difficult for us. There would be traffic at the airport. There would be, there would be you know, issues of getting a hotel, all of that kind of stuff. Guys, this is 2,000 years ago. There's no airports. There's no taxi cabs. There's no hotels. There's none of that kind of stuff. It is absolute chaos. Literally, literally thousands of people in the streets of Bethlehem milling around, not knowing what to do. It's a dangerous situation. There's got to be thieves. There's got to be crises everywhere that you look. And there's this sense of urgency about it. You have to go. You have to go now. And you don't have a choice. And by the way, you're going to have to bring a lot of money because we're going to tax you when you get there. So now I'm carrying a lot of money in the midst of this crazy situation. This urgency was a distraction. Everybody's life was in upheaval. And I, I don't have time to get into this very much, but, but you know, um, one of the great uh, leadership lessons I have learned is that there is a major difference between what's urgent and what's important. And so often we get caught up in what they call the tyranny of the urgent, where what, what becomes urgent, you know, anything that's got a date and a time on it becomes urgent, right? And, and you got to get it done by that time. Guys, Christmas is coming. My wife asked me yesterday, how many days till Christmas? And we counted and went, okay, well, it's one last day today. And tomorrow will be one last day. You know, it's coming. And, and there is this tyranny of the urgent that we have to get everything done by a certain time and a certain way and all that kind of stuff. And, and listen, when something is urgent, it has to be handled. I can speak to this because I just had heart surgery. I went to the doctor and he said, there's something wrong with your heart. And I said, what if I don't do anything about it? And he said, you'll die. And I said, let's have surgery, right? And I didn't have time, but it didn't matter because it was urgent. And you deal with what's urgent when it comes. Right now, if while I'm preaching, somebody was to just pass out, I'm not just fall asleep, that we don't worry about, but when somebody <laughs> passes out, we would all stop the sermon, we would call 911, it wouldn't matter if I never finished the message, we would do CPR, we'd do whatever we had to do, because that would become urgent, right? A lot of times when you don't do the things that are important, you end up with things that are urgent, and the tyranny of the urgent can choke out your life. And this is why we have to prioritize things that are important. I'm saying all this not so you'll be a better business leader. I'm saying all this for this reason. Nothing's more important than your relationship with Jesus. The problem is it never feels urgent. So we can always put it off for something that's more urgent. The time that I need to spend worshiping, the time I need to spend in God's word, the time I need to spend in prayer, the, the confession of sin that needs to take place in my life. I'm going to get to it. It's not that I don't want to get to it. I really do want to get to it. I really want to grow as a Christian. It's just that right now there's some urgent stuff I have to deal with. And some of us never get to what's important. Urgency was a huge distraction for them. But here's my question. When the chaos of the Christmas season surrounds you? Are you going to move away from Jesus? Or are you going to move toward him? 
All these people in Bethlehem, they could not be bothered for reasons we could totally understand, and they moved away from Jesus. But there's another story that intersects. Go, we're still in uh, Luke 2. Go to verse 8. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven... The shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then to see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And to all who, all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. Guys, the shepherds had a job to do. They got interrupted too. They were out in the fields keeping watch over their flocks. They had, who knows, hundreds, thousands of head of sheep that they had to take care of. Chances are they didn't belong to them. Chances are they were hirelings. That would have been 99% of the shepherds in that day. And so chances are they're out there doing their job when suddenly a heavenly host appears and gets their attention. And now they've been interrupted. And now in the middle of their ho-hum existence, they're interrupted. And what did they do? They didn't have time for this. They didn't even know this family that they were being told about. And they were taking a big risk. There's not a word. I know in your nativity scene, there's one or two little sheep that come and, right? But there's no mention of that. They didn't bring any sheep as far as we know. And they certainly didn't bring a thousand sheep. That would have been a little crowded, right? Apparently, they left their sheep behind. Were there other shepherds? I don't know. But apparently, they walked away from their job to go and see this child. They didn't seem to make any arrangements. They just started moving toward Jesus when they heard about him. We don't even see them debating what to do. Oh, did you hear that message? What do you think we should do? It's obvious what to do. Unto you has been born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He's been born for you. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the Messiah, the long-awaited Emmanuel that Israel has so long been waiting for. What should we do? We should drop everything and get as close to him as we possibly can. How can you possibly ignore a message like that and just get back to the whole home of your regular life? Even when they did return to their sheep, what were they doing? Glorifying and praising God. No mention of that before. There's something that happens when you encounter Jesus. Changes your relationship with God. Christmas changed those shepherds because they made Jesus the center of it. Not just an addition to the chaos. Listen again to the message that they received. Verse 10, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people for today in the city of David, there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. 
What are you going to do with a message like that? Remember, in the midst of the chaos, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Does that word describe your life right now? (laughs) Is it going to describe your life two weeks from now? Three weeks from now? It should. Peace is the reason Jesus came. But when he came to the people in Bethlehem, they were too distracted. They walked away from Jesus. The shepherds dropped everything and walked toward him. And it changed them. The people of Bethlehem couldn't find room for Jesus. The shepherds made room. And that's what I want you to go away with today. I'm not telling you you're going to be less busy this year if you just focus on Jesus. What I'm telling you is you have to carve room out because there's a lot of urgent stuff, but nothing's as important as your relationship with Jesus. So my message today is simple. I know it's chaotic out there. I know what the malls are like. I know there's packages coming. I know there's parties, there's people, there's work things to do and all that kind of stuff. Various crises. Just like we saw in the video, Christmas chaos is running around pulling the lights out of your Christmas tree, right? Um, You're going to face it this year, just like you face it every year. That's a given. The only question is, in the midst of the chaos this year, in the, in the Christmas play that is your life, will you be in the role of the innkeeper or will you be in the role of the shepherd? Will you be moving away from Jesus or will you find yourself moving toward Jesus? You may think you're just going to get swept up in a current, but my friends, the choice is yours. Will you move away from Jesus or will you move toward him? The way you answer that question will make all the difference. Not just at Christmas, but always. Let's stand and pray together.